Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and what a thrill it is to be joined today by Idra Novi, an author who I've admired for so long, and I finally get to talk to her for the show. She's an award-winning author of the novels Ways to Disappear and Those Who Knew. Her work has been translated into a dozen languages, and she's written for The Atlantic, The New York Times, and The LA Times. She teaches fiction at Princeton University and in the MFA program at NYU. And her latest novel is called Take What You Need. Welcome, Idra. Thank you for having me, Maris. Oh my gosh, such a pleasure. And this is such a great book to talk about for me personally. <laughs> I'm going to make this about me and say that I live in a very carefully constructed blue bubble, but I do sometimes go to visit my Jewish relative in West Virginia. And um, it's a different vibe. So so I do have stuff in common with one of the protagonists of your book, Leah, who is also maybe a little bit like you too. Yes. I did not know you had West Virginian Jewish relatives. Revelations. So th this is your first novel set in the U.S. though. Yes. And I think that it took me a long time to figure out what exactly... I wanted to write about Appalachia. And I talked about this a little bit last night, so I'll see if I can say this in a more concise way. I was listening to the marine biologist, Enrique Sala, and he was saying that as a marine biologist, a lot of his research was basically writing an obituary for the ocean. And he didn't want to spend the rest of his life writing an obituary for the ocean. He wanted to talk about the future of the ocean and what in the ocean could be saved and resurrected. And when I heard that... It rang true for me about what I wanted to write about Appalachia and why it sort of took me a while, because I think so much of the literature about Appalachia and the discussion around Appalachia feels like an obituary. And I didn't want to add to that. And I think, you know, Appalachia is beautifully, complexly alive. And I wanted mm -hmm. to figure out a way to sort of pivot and find a way to write about it that felt like I was writing and imagining its future and imagining its present that is vibrantly alive. So that I think was why it took me a little while to figure out how to get there. I, I love that, especially because one of the things I've noticed in doing this podcast in a lot of the contemporary fiction that I read, just about everyone, every author I read refers to a certain man as that man. And in this, we get even more from Leah. There's, you know, she notices a stiff red cap. We all know what the cap says. Right. And later on, we hear her talk about unlaced construction boots and buzzed heads. And it has become a kind of shorthand to talk about so many different kinds of people who are far into people in New York City, let's say that. Yes. But the problem with cultural shorthand is that yes. it makes it easy to dismiss people, to think of them categorically as kinds and sort of dehumanize people. And just like I don't think anyone from New York wants to be dehumanized, it diminishes people in cities to do that to others. And I think it diminishes our humanity. I think it diminishes our literature. It diminishes our national imagination when we think categorically and we, we can't get past it. 100%. And you, of course, show all of the sides of this and take what you need, including the fact that Leah, of course, is someone who has 
left her hometown and has a husband and son who are not white and has a lot that she wants to protect. Yeah. The stakes are high and if the stakes are for all of us, you know, there isn't anyone, the stakes are your life, you know, but there's also, you know, the stakes are the question of what world do you want to live in? Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you don't want to be categorically dismissed, then I think it, even if it's more work as not to be inclined to categorically dismiss others based on those things of cultural shorthand that you were talking about. Yes, yes, yes. And so the most wonderful counter to Leah is, is her stepmother, Jean, or former stepmother, Jean. And I, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about her learning style and her reading style and, and how that is representative of, of her wider character and philosophy. You know, when I was trying to come up with these voices and I talked about this with a couple of friends, I was like, well, I just, they each have a di- very different syntax, you know? And I wanted that even on the sentence level that you would hear their voices and that Jean's voice would sort of crackle differently. And Leah's someone who's constantly editing herself and is sort of worried that she's phrasing things incorrectly and is sort of like, a little stifled, you know, and, and Jean isn't, and those things, you know, for better, or for worse, they, you know, they both have their drawbacks. So I think that I was trying to sort of, you know, figure out what that would look like for as for a reading experience and what that would look like writing it. Cause there's such different voices and they're inhabiting really different realities. So that was something it took a lot of drafts to sort of figure out how to get their voices. But one thing that really helped was that I met this woman in, in my hometown who became a friend, Helen Glubich, and she And, you know, an artist herself, she does collages on cigar boxes and she goes to flea markets and finds things and does things with them. And so I, you know, made recordings of her voice and of our conversations. And it's not, she's not the person in the book, but her vibrant way of talking about things and all the art that she can refer to and she can go to flea market, know when something was made and she can pick out what's real and what's derivative, you know, and, and she breaks all the stereotypes of who you, who you would expect her to be. And I think most people do, you know, if you, if you spend time with them. For sure. Jean just seems to have a special, like she's especially good at being aware of the beauty, even in the most unattractive circumstances. Well, I think that's a question of sensibility. And I know that's why I wake up in the morning. (laughs) You know, I think it's like, you know, just the pursuit of you just don't know where you're going to find beauty. And sometimes you can find it in a book or you can find it, you know, going to see what is supposed to be, you know, art. But then sometimes you can see it on the street and it's 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 just as moving and is even more striking because it's unexpected. So I I think this book was a little bit about staying open to that as a writer and as a person for me, you know, of not expecting and only recognizing it in certain places. And even in terms of, I feel like I plan so carefully what books I will read because my time is, you know, limited. And the idea that Jean can just go into the library and pick out a book from the shelf and and that's that's her one shows an a willingness to learn perhaps oh i love picking up books from the curb so i hope and maybe maybe the reason why i love doing that i mean i you know and also the free libraries where you can open the door and see what's inside because it's <laughs> just feels like a low stakes risk and i love getting books at flea markets and you know book barns and wherever because i think there is a way that the books i'm actually going to go into the bookstore and get in hardcover or what whatever it, it is a carefully curated things where you have things where you sort of 
with your finite number of reading hours, want to sort of hedge your bets and read something that's going to be meaningful. But there's also that fabulous experience of serendipity of maybe finding a book that you wouldn't choose, but is the one that sort of shifts you and the way you see things because you didn't choose it. And Jean, for sure, gets so much from from reading um, a couple of artists in particular. I'm wondering if you could talk about that and what kind of, what draws her to these specific women. Yes. I mean, she has an almost sort of religious devotion, the way some people might, you know, pull out their Bible at night and she pulls out her Louise Bourgeois. And I did that while I was working on the book just to, I, and I highly recommend a daily dose of Louise. I think it's, you know, mm. can become an essential vitamin for your mind. I think, that, you know, the thing about Louise Bourgeois is that she's sort of of the same generation as Jean. And she has a recognition, Louise Bourgeois does, that her father and her sort of complicated relationship to her father and her father's sexuality and the how, how these libidinal forces that she saw in her father and her own libidinal forces are things that are sort of all mixed up with the way that she makes art, you know, and her piece, Destruction of the Father, becomes really important for Jean and figuring out how she's going to make sort of a, a touchstone sculpture that is in some way sort of, you know, a way to sort of, I don't want to give too much of the book away, but, you know, to to, to react to her father artistically, let's say, in, in, in her own way. So I think, you know, Louise Bourgeois is, you know, Jean's, the book starts when she's at 65, which is the age where, you know, Louise Bourgeois was when she was doing some of the reading that Jean in the book is reading. And I found that Louise Bourgeois book, it was at a flea market. It was a Bull Creek, the flea market that's in. So I, and I think there is funny thing about Louise Bourgeois because she is, you know, you can find her in funny, unexpected places. It's strange where you can, where Louise Bourgeois shows up you know, given how radical she is. And so that was one of the reasons, but and also just because I think the libidinal forces that she's reckoning with as an artist are, are, are important for things that, you know, Jean also has so many unresolved feelings about men and the men in her life and how she's working them out as an artist. Mm -hmm. So yeah, tell me a little bit more about Jean's art in terms of you as the author deciding what kinds of creations Jean will make? Well, a slightly sort of nerdy background to this is there's the Serbian poet Vasco Popa, who was translated by Charles Simic, who, you know, is recently deceased, amazing poet and translator. And he has a series of poems called The Little Box. And um, I loved these series of poems, Little Box, and Inside the Little Box, which he uses a female pronoun. I'm, ass I'm assuming that's the case in, in Serbian as well. And he fits himself in the little box and his town and the whole world goes inside the little box. And when I was teaching for the Bard Prison Initiative, I was teaching in a women's correctional facility. I wrote back to that by writing a series of poems called The Little Prison, which just sort of takes in the whole world. And I think since then, I've had this fascination with boxes. And so when I learned to weld, I learned to weld boxes. And I work with three different metal artists and all of them approach the six sides of a box differently, which was fascinating. You know, you would think, but like, you know, Julia Murray, who's a metal artist I work with here in, in Brooklyn, she cut them and then we, we sort of tack welded them. But when I work with an artist at the Center for Metal Arts in Pennsylvania, he was sort of flummoxed by Julia's approach to a box. And 
we did something entirely different. And then when I worked with a sort of off the good artist that I wrote about for Orion magazine, Norm yeah. Ed, he was like, huh, you know what I would do if I was doing a box. And I just found it so revealing that the nature of a box to them with was so different, you know, and, and that was something that I wanted to explore because I think Jean keeps revisiting the box over and over again. Where do you let the light in? Where do you mingle with it? You know, those are her sort of driving questions. Yeah. She, there, at one point she says she keeps trying to get all the darkness into the boxes, but then her mind keeps making more, which of course that sounds right. <laughs> I know. I was like, there's a, there's a drop autobiography right there. <laughs> And, and the other thing about Jean's art is it's a mix of the very large and the very small, like the heavy and the delicate. Tell me a little bit about that. Oh, I like that. Yes, there are those sort of that dialectic between the heavy and the delicate. And I think that that is something that is interesting to do, I think, with metal. When I was starting to learn to weld, there was a way that, you know, there would be a point where it's called the, the metal anneals because you sort of torch it too long and it becomes brittle and it becomes delicate. And then, but metal otherwise is very forgiving. You know, you can sort of melt down metal unless you in, introduce too many impurities and sort of remake it over and over again. And in that way, I think it's a little bit like language. You know, language is like that, that you can kind of melt it down and and and, and do it again you know, unless you ruin a word by sort of annealing the word because you've sort of pressed too much heat on it. So I think I was just, you know, I guess maybe as, a, as you know, coming from translation that there was a way that I really liked the way that metal could be endlessly melted down and remade the way that I think language can. And so I think that was something that was sort of playing with writing those, writing those scenes too. Oh, I love that. And it must ask because you have personally done this. Have you watched any YouTube tutorials that taught you how to Oh, yes. It, yeah. I, <laughs> yes. I've seen my share of weld porn. It's true. <laughs> it's called weld porn, but nobody's welding naked because that would be quite dangerous. So it's it's welding. <laughs> <laughs> nobody's, it's, you know, it's just called that because it's sort of, you know, showing a little welding leg as it were. Yes. I, I love <laughs> welding leg. Very good. Let's go a bit back to talking about Leah and Jean in terms of both writing from two points of view in two time frames that sometimes overlap and I'm wondering how do you pace out which in info to reveal when in, in the story and then I want to talk about stepmothers oh yes as do I I mean, clearly I wouldn't talk about stepmothers. I wrote a whole book about it. Um, I think the structure took a while. You know, I think whatever, this is a short book, but I think I definitely wrote over a thousand pages and I just excised and excised and rewrote. And, you know, I just, it felt like a book that I wanted to make sure that I was never saying more than anything, that I would just stay in the scene. I would grant, you know, equal complexity to everyone. I didn't want to condemn. I didn't want to Hector. I read a lot of Claire Keegan, who I think is really good mm -hmm. at sort of just staying the scene. You know, she writes about rural Ireland, but I think there is a way that the way she writes about rural life, you know, she, she writes about it in a way where she brings a sort of poetic sensorial aspect to the scenes that draw you in, yeah. but she's never editorializing. And I found that really helpful writing this book. I think in the way that I think we've sort of, we were so limited in the way that we sort of 
talk about Appalachia and contemporary literature. And it felt like I had to find a new way in, I think, as a writer. And so I think those two modes of writing of Jean in one temporal sense and Leah in another temporal sense was a way to sort of play with the way that they would sort of come alive on the page, living Mm -hmm. these very different realities. And so Mm -hmm. I wanted to create those contrasts in a way. Absolutely. And, and, and as readers, we want to see Leah and Jean together because their backstory is so compelling in that Jean became a real mother figure to Leah. And yet, as a stepmother, you don't have any legal rights. Yes. Which is so astonishing. I think that there's ways, you know, that you can have like what's considered domestic marriage for having lived together for a certain number of years, but that doesn't really bestow rights on a step parent. And even if you step in with two feet, which I think is interesting, it's called a step parent. I was like, is it because you step in to parent? Is that why they're called step parents? Cause you step in, you know, and, and, and I think in the case, I don't know, I don't know. I, I love, you know, etymologies and how those things happen, but I think that I think there's something about that where stepmothers are seen as sort of suspects. They're not, they don't truly belong as parents, you know? And I think that women in the history of art are often seen as suspect. And I think that rural artists are sometimes seen as somehow sort of suspect. And we like relegate them to the category of folk art or regional art, simply because maybe if they're writing for and about where they are, that there's a way that that's not sort of granted in terms of subject matter is seen as equally sophisticated or serious or something like that. And so I felt like there was ways that, you know, if you're a rural artist, you're sort of almost like seen as a stepmother and sort of like the way we think about art in this country. And also thinking about the way, you know, women are seen within the history of art and how suspect Agnes Martin was seen for a long time and Louise Bourgeois. And those are sort of these two touched on, you know, artists for her, for Jean. And they were seen, I think, as sort of suspect and weren't taken seriously or granted their due for a long time. And of course, the other version of the stepmother that we are taught to fear is the one in in the fairy tales. Right. Yes. Which is why this, you know, that became part of this book, which and it's sort of just, you know, I guess you call it like a late motif. It's just folded in. You know, it's not it's just I wanted to have it in there just sort of as a sort of something that was tucked in here and there, you know, and, and, you know, I, I guess it could the whole thing be seen in some ways. I don't want to say too much, you know, that has a a sort of like underlying fairy tale current to it. And I think that stepmother fairy tales are so fascinating because in the original stories, there wasn't line made between women who gave birth to their children and women who became mothers in other ways that was added in later that wasn't in the original iterations of the tales. And so that already is sort of a mangling, you know, mm. with what we think about motherhood. And so there is Jean. And, you know, just as we've mangled with with fairy tales, she's mangling with boxes and mangling, you know, <laughs> with, with metal in, in, in some way. And I guess I was mangling with fairy tales. So... Oh, I love that. And I love that word choice. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> Speaking of etymology and 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 maybe you already answered this question in in your previous response but Jean of course refers to her creations as manglements how, how did that come about I think for these yeah these questions that you know that yes I I was I just 
I love making up words like that. I mean, I think maybe coming from translation that often you need a neologism to make something happen in English that doesn't necessarily happen. And I translated um, this Brazilian poet this from the Pantanal, which is like the wetlands in Brazil. And it's a rural place. And I think I really connected with his poems because I grew up in a rural place. And he made up these words to describe certain things in those poems. And I loved coming up with the neologisms for that, in part because I think Brazilian literature didn't doesn't have a lot of poems or about the wetlands. You know, there's not a, there's just not sort of like off the grid because most of the poetry as it is here, it's sort of centered in urban places. And I learned so much from that. And so I think coming up with the word mangoid was like going back to sort of thinking about well, what words can refer to making art outside of the usual centers. And it seems to require some new words. So I love that. I love that. Let's talk about Jean's next door neighbor for, for a little while. <laughs> Elliot, especially when we first meet him, seems like he might be the living embodiment of one of those types of threatening boys or men who we see in the pages of the New York Times, perhaps. Every day, yes. <laughs> Every single fucking day. And then he defies both our expectations as readers and also genes. Yeah. Tell me about that. I think that for me in some ways was kind of the heart of the book, was also to define my expectations. Mm. And, you know, I just think that, I think I I grew up with a lot of, you know, rural boys who maybe have seen from afar might be seen that way. But then, you know, I would run into one of them at the library getting books or, you know, I would sit next to them in art class and, you know, like my own my own brothers. And they were incredibly sensitive, gentle people and thinkers and readers. And I just I know that those stereotypes are false. And I think that we've become kind of comfortable with them. And so this book became a way to sort of write against them in some way. And I think Elliot, in a way, is a character who is more common than we think. And when I was trying to figure out the audio for this book, I came up against the same depictions you were talking about in the New York Times. And we were trying to find someone to do the audio. And I really wanted to make sure that the audio voice for Elliot wasn't a villainized voice. It wasn't sort of defaulting to the voices in deliverance, which I think we're under the sort of dark shadow of that idiotic book and movie forever. And so, and damaging, right? It's just dang- dangerous and damaging. And then there's this podcast, Apod Lechia. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's no. fantastic. It's sort of like a progressive Appalachian podcast. And they had interviewed a lot of young men and they were so diverse in experience and sexual identity. And so I picked some of them and I sent them to Christina Delane, who did the audio. And I said, this is the voice that, you know, I want for, for Elliot. And please listen to them. And we got on a Zoom, to her credit, with the head of Penguin Random House Audio. And I said, you need to get these voices to be culturally accurate and to not sort of default to these stereotypical voices that you often hear on audio for Appalachia. And they're just horrible. And so we, I, I, everyone was really careful and open to trying to get it right. And I really appreciated that. And then Audible like chose it as one of their like editor selects. So I think all of that work came together, but I, I felt like I did not want Elliot for all my work to give him that complexity to then be reduced and sort of an audio voice that was sort of defaulting to these sort of like 
villainize voices for rural men. It would sort of undercut everything that I was trying to do in the book, you know? So I, I, I was excited that we, that everyone was open to having a meaningful conversation to avoid that. I love that. And now I have to listen to the audiobook. Obviously. Oh, I hope you like it. <laughs> um, wait, so now that we're talking about the audiobook, is it a multi-cast? I, I, the way I would assume that the audiobook is cast is that there's one person who does Jean's chapters and one person who does Leah's. You are guessing correctly. I did okay. Leah's and Christina Ooh. did, yeah, Christina did Jean's. And, you know, there's a big difference when we were recording them because I am, I'm not a professional actor. I have done many genres, but that is not one of them. And so, <laughs> you know, that's just like not in my, you know, many sort of like, attempts at being sort of a novice who tries out new genres. I, I I don't act. I think I never will. But I think that my voice when I'm doing Leah's chapters is much more sort of like a writer's voice. And mm -hmm. Christina, who's fantastic, has won lots of audio awards. She's doing Jean. She's doing it more as a dra dramatization. And I, and I think it, I think it worked really beautifully because they're, as you said, writing in two temporal senses and really sort of long scenes and then sort of these sort of contracted short scenes. So I, I, I like the contrast. I think it was, it sort of fit for this book. Maybe it wouldn't work for all books, but for this book, it felt like, it felt like a doable thing to have my writerly voice and her professional voice. So I, I love that. And I, I guess that of course, Elliot defies our expectations, but, but so does Jean in the way that she finds it so gratifying that she has found someone who can kind of really see her and see what she's trying to do. Yes. And thank you. That's so, so beautifully articulated. And, and I do think that, you know, to find someone who does see what she's doing and how you just don't know who that person's going to be. You know, and you think it's going to be the person who's also a maker who is, you know, sort of immersed or invested, but that may not be true, you know, and I heard somebody say something, I forget where it was, where they like gave a name and a location and said like, you know, I'm just not interested in that reader who's has this name and is from this place. And I was like, but why would you categorically discount a reader based on a name and a place? You don't know who your best reader is. You never know. And where what their name is and where they're from is never, ever going to tell you who might be able to appreciate what you set out to make and for it to stay with them. We, we just never know who that person might be. So I think that's what Jean discovers, too, you know, with Elliot. I love that. Let's talk about other books that you would like to recommend. So one I would like to recommend is Claudia Pinheiro, who's an Argentinian writer, and she wrote A Little Luck. It's translated by Francis Riddle, um, and it's coming out in July in a couple months. So I have that galley. I'm, I'm doing galleys because maybe these are things you want to read and have on the show yeah, coming up. Charcoal Press. Yes, yeah, fantastic writer. And Francis is a great translator. And then this is coming out way down the road, but it just got here. I'm very excited about it. It's Sarah Blakely Cartwright's novel, Alice Sadie Celine, and that is coming out in the very end of this year. And Sarah is the director of Chicago Review of Books. She's an associate editor at a public space, fantastic literary citizen, and I am very excited about her book. And then there is also a fantastic novels I've been admiring for a long time, Gina Apostol's new book, La Tercera, and that is coming out next month. So that is imminent in the world and has a fabulous cover, by the way. I think it's really beautiful design. 
It it really does. Listener, <laughs> you'll have to look it up. Yes. Yes. Click away and you'll see it soon. <laughs> <laughs> well, Idra, thank you so much. This was as lovely as I knew it would be. I knew it would be too. Thank you so much, Maris. This is really fun. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.